America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Russian political opposition to Putin's rule. Our guest is Vladimir Milov, a Russian opposition politician, publicist, economist, and economic advisor to the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Mr. Milov served as Russia's deputy minister of energy from May to October 2002. Prior to that, he was an advisor to the Minister of Energy and head of strategy at the Federal Energy Commission. In 2003, Mr. Milov founded the Institute of Energy Policy think tank. He has been a vocal critic of Vladimir Putin since leaving Russian government in 2002 and currently hosts regular talk shows at the Navalny Live YouTube channel. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed and Boris Yeltsin was elected the first president of the Russian Federation. Yeltsin quickly pursued radical reforms to transition Russia's communist economy to a market economy. The reforms destabilized the country and threatened the power of former members of the Soviet political class. In 1992, Yeltsin's vice president said the reforms were causing economic genocide. Facing internal opposition, Yeltsin used force in an attempt to dissolve the Russian parliament in October of 1993. The 10-day conflict was the deadliest street fighting in Moscow since the 1917 October Revolution. Russia's GDP contracted by nearly 30% from 1991 to 1998. That year, the ruble lost two-thirds of its value, and Russia defaulted on its debt. Amid the financial instability and privatization of former state enterprises, select Russian businessmen acquired vast amounts of wealth and power. These oligarchs provided ideal conditions for an autocrat to consolidate power among a small political and financial elite. President Yeltsin resigned due to internal pressure in 1999. Prime Minister Vladimir Putin became interim president and was elected president in 2000. President Putin instantly recognized the connection between foreign policy and popularity at home and ferociously prosecuted a war in Chechnya, against separatists and terrorists who had attacked Russian civilians. Though that war caused massive civilian casualties, it inspired praise in Russia and only weak statements of disapproval from the West. President Putin revived Russia's nationalist mission to protect himself from internal opposition and restore Russia to greatness. He combined disinformation and deniability with disruptive technologies to intimidate neighbors and subvert Western democracies. Putin also cultivated economic dependencies, especially on Russian-supplied energy, while brandishing and using improved, unconventional, conventional, and nuclear military capabilities. The color revolutions in Georgia in 2003, in Ukraine in 2003 and 2004, 
and Kyrgyzstan in 2005 clarified Putin's fears of opposition to his consolidation of power. Although the color revolutions and protests in Moscow were based on the population's desire for freedom and improved governance, Putin saw U.S. and European hands behind them. In response, the Kremlin jailed and murdered numerous journalists and opposition leaders. Yet despite Putin's efforts, the progressive protests across the former Soviet states reached Russia. In 2012 through 2013, widespread protests contested official election results, claiming Putin had won 63.6% of the vote. Protests returned in 2017 and 2018, and massive protests again erupted in the summer of 2019 following the removal of opposition candidates from the ballot in the Moscow City Duma elections. On February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia's war on Ukraine is the greatest threat to stability in Europe since World War II. Even so, President Putin's actions demonstrate that his rule is fragile and dependent on brute force and terror. There are more political prisoners in Russia now than at the height of the Cold War. He has enacted Soviet-style restraints on freedom, imprisoning thousands of protesters and criminalizing dissent. We welcome Vladimir Milov to discuss the Russian opposition, the internal and external threats to Putin's grip on power, and the impacts of Russia's aggression on the world. Vladimir, welcome to Battlegrounds. I cannot think of anyone in the world I'd rather have a conversation with right now to help us understand not only what's happening in the world, but to, to place you know this, this catastrophe, this crisis in Ukraine in, in a broader historical context. And and for our viewers, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about our shared history you know, at the end of the Cold War, because we're really, I think, seeing kind of the, a, a new era emerge that, that we maybe have not acknowledged for some time in terms of the, the competition with with uh, you know an authoritarian regime in, in Russia. But I, you know, I was a cavalry troop commander in 1989, patrolling the east-west German border. Uh, our troop was patrolling that border when when uh, when when East Germany lifted travel restrictions to the west, and, and we saw the Iron Curtain part right, and and then we saw the Berlin Wall fall, and and we personally witnessed you know tens and then hundreds and then thousands of East Germans flocking across the border, bearing bouquets of flowers and bottles of wine, and there were there were hugs and there were tears of joy, right? And hey, the Cold War was over, authoritarianism was over right and, and, and there was a new dawn for democracy hey vladimir maybe tell our viewers where you were on the other side right of that iron curtain in, in 1989 and through 1991 um what was your experience well thank you so much general for doing this and really happy to be part of your show and yeah i was i just turned 17 uh in uh, <laughs> june 1989 exactly when solidarity in poland won the elections and formed the first non-communist government, you can imagine what a, what a tsunami this was. Poland, Hungary, East Germany falling apart. Then came the Velvet Revolution and Czechoslovakia. And uh, right before the new year, Ceausescu regime fell in Romania. We were absolutely overwhelmed by these events. And you know, for all the people who wanted change in the Soviet Union, that was really that created a lot of tailwinds because we thought that if Eastern Europeans uh, were, were able to do it, 
that we can also do it ourselves. And then uh, a couple of years later, Soviet regime fell as well, which is an absolutely historic uh, celebratory moment and a moment for real opportunity, which unfortunately, looking back 30 years, uh, we missed, but not completely. We still managed to experience some degree of freedom, which will be useful in the future to build a normal democratic Russia after Putin. Well, Vladimir, let me just thank you on behalf of everybody in the free world for your courage and your determination to advance, you know, the the, the, the rights of the Russian people and to and to be a strong voice against the authoritarian regime in in uh, in, in Moscow. So let's maybe begin with that. Let's go back to ninety one, right? You mentioned Romania. I was an exchange student in Romania in high school, right? So so I saw Romania under Ceausescu. It, it it kind of redoubled my determination to serve in the military, right? To uh, you know, on the front, what I viewed as the frontier of, of you know, between freedom and 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 uh, and and uh, authoritarian totalitarian regimes associated with the Soviet the Soviet Union, in particular the Warsaw Pact. But you know, I think what a lot of Americans want to know these days is, hey, how did this happen, right? I mean, it was it was an optimistic period in the '90s, right? We'd won the Cold War, right? And and uh, and 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 so, what was your experience as a as a young person in Russia, you know, in the '90s? And I, we we would just love to hear your thoughts on like how the heck did Putin come to power and why are we where we are today? Well, first I have to say that uh, for those of your viewers and listeners who understand Russian, I made a specific cycle of videos on my YouTube channel actually describing the real 90s, not the 90s portrayed by the Putin's propaganda, but how exactly we lived uh, during this time. These were difficult times, very troubled times. I have to say that the average cost of Ural's oil was less than $17 per barrel uh, during Bo Boris Yeltsin's year. So the current Russian rulers would have died from a heart attack in 30 seconds if, if uh, <laughs> oil co have cost like that for a decade. There was a pretty chaotic time, but also a time of freedom uh, and a time of hope. And believe it or not, uh, when Putin arrived as president in 2000, there was no idea uh, among the majority of us that we'll ever slide back to authoritarianism. There were really worrying early signs, but generally we thought that, listen, it's not possible. We have been a democracy for well over a decade now. So uh, how could this happen? And uh, unfortunately, I think we obviously underestimated the strength of authoritarian restoration. Well, <laughs> we didn't read Fukuyama too much these days, but many people say now that Fukuyama's fault where creating all this rosy, hopeful atmosphere. Well, let's, be, let's be fair to Frank, right? He's one of my colleagues. He, he, yeah, he, he, had, uh, he had some caveats, as you know, in that, that but, people but don't discuss. But you're right. Present, For our viewers, what we're talking about is this idea yeah. that an arc of history had guaranteed the privacy, right, of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems, right? We were, I, I think what you're saying, Vladimir, is we were over-optimistic, right, in this period. Do, yeah, do you yeah. think? No, I think that really Francis Fukuyama offers a lot of really thoughtful and complex analysis. Most of it is spot on. But this catchy slogan, like the end yeah, of yeah. history, like right, we don't right. have to, you know what was the major problem of the 90s and uh, Putin's uh, dictatorship restoration? That people sort of let it go. We thought the job is done. Uh, now, the hard lesson is that democracy is hard work. Protecting yeah. it for, for, from authoritarian restoration is hard everyday work that everybody should focus on. We never completely protect. 
can happen in uh, democratic countries, even EU member states like Hungary, authoritarian restorations can happen, which we are seeing uh, today. So this is something that, you know, the Soviet Union fell uh, relatively easy for most people uh, who were fighting for democracy inside Russia. We didn't really pay a heavy price for a 91 revolution. And we thought like, ah, oh, well, this, this is a gift and this is something that's going to linger forever. We should have understood uh, more about uh, hardcore institutional work to be done every day. And we also, we had no idea that authoritarian restoration just don't, doesn't happen overnight. A dictator never comes and says, uh, we abolish democracy, I'm the single ruler from now. No, it's just a very gradual process, like, you know, a, a frog that is slowly boiling, you know, in cold water. Uh, when uh, you have a system of judge appointments reshuffled one day, one independent TV channel is shut down the other, but people say, you know, but we still have a lot of independent channels. So this, you know, step by step, gradually, in several years' time, you found out that, bang, you're trapped. So we were really too idealistic, and um, we did not raise the alarm, uh, and we did not do the institutional homework to protect democracy on all levels, local, regional, federal, parliamentary system, judiciary system. Now, that's a hard lesson, but I think right now the good news is that we know it. And the yeah. conclusion is that next time uh, we're going to have much more experience about that to try to build a much better functioning democracy in Russia. Yeah, Vladimir, this is such an important point, I think. You know, we can't take anything for granted. And, you know, I, I think in, in our history, I mean, our, our founders, the founders of our republic, uh, they, they knew this, right? And, and they knew that our republic would require constant nurturing, right? And, and, and I think that that's, uh, sometimes these days we're too pessimistic because we don't recognize, hey, in a democracy, what's, what's great about a democracy is you actually have a say in how you're governed, right? You, can, you, you, you have a process to, for, for improvement short of revolution. But could you maybe talk about some of the signposts along the way? What were some of the most important events uh, in your memory and your experience, that that saw you know the the, the nascent democracy in in and and uh, and, and free and open you know, system in in Russia, uh, you, know, you know go away. I mean, what, what were some of the you know the key events in that period of time under Yeltsin and then and then obviously since Putin has taken power. Well, first, I have to say that a lot more uh, was needed to be done in terms of enlightening people, uh, the Russian population, because they really were tired of chaos, not only of the chaos of the 90s, uh, when many people speak about that, they really forget the chaos of the previous decades. Mm -hmm. 70s and 80s was not an easy, uh, rosy time. It was a very difficult time. We had to struggle for basic food and supplies uh, every day. So a few decades of very chaotic, turbulent times, Many people were actually seduced by the idea of, you know, a strong leadership, a strong man coming and solving all the problems. You don't have to do nothing. Just surrender your basic civil and political rights and this good daddy will do everything for you. That was, I mean, I have to say that this idea was pretty popular in Russia even before Putin emerged as a major uh, political leader. These ideas, after all the difficult uh, times of the 90s, were circulating around a lot. Like I would cite uh, opinion poll done by Fzioum pollster in November 99, 60% uh, of the population had answered that they would prefer 
if military or paramilitary people uh, take over the country to uh, restore order, you know, to establish order with a strong hand. That was pretty popular. This is actually one of the reasons why Yeltsin ultimately picked uh, Putin as a successor. He was sort of satisfying the demand. So I think we haven't done enough to enlighten the population uh, to actually not, not getting seduced about these sort of ideas of a strong man in power. It always ends up bad. Now, you know, you know, Vlad, Vladimir, I just got yeah. want to thank you because, I mean, I think education is, is almost a precondition for democracy, right? And that's what this whole podcast is about. And, and, and hearing you say that is, I think, extremely powerful. So, I mean, I, I think an educated populace is, 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 all, you know, is, is a requirement, you know, for an effective, you know, democratic form of governance. Yeah. And the second thing I wanted to say is exactly what you mentioned, General, about the founding fathers and the American system and American constitution, because you have separation of powers working. Yeah. Now, we, we didn't have that uh, in the 90s. We had some form of freedom, but that was like sort of a volleyball, you know, between parliament and president, the winner takes it all system, right? So everybody was fighting for total control of, of uh, all the institutions. We didn't build, uh, and we, we didn't really appreciate what separation of power means, uh, that absence of separation of powers leads to authoritarian capture. So I think, uh, again, next time, next attempt uh, to build democratic Russia, this is what, what is needed to be done from day one to establish totally independent branches, judiciary, parliament, regions, local self-governance. Unfortunately, we didn't have that. We were sort of building this overly centralized vertical of power under Yeltsin since, uh, since the beginning of his rule. Uh, essentially, Putin uh, became his heir in that he, he just inherited the system which was very convenient for total power grab. That was a mistake. Separation of powers is a precondition for normal democracy. This is such an important point, you know, and, and you know, our founders, of course, they learned from history, like Russians, I, I think, will be able to learn from history. And, and what our founders had in mind were the bloody wars in England in the 17th century and the rise of Oliver Cromwell. They said, okay, let's not do that, right? Let's figure out uh, a, a way uh, within our constitution to separate powers and provide these checks and balances. And, you know, it works pretty well. I mean, Vladimir, I mean, I, I know that, you know, you probably watch us engage in a, in a good deal of self-flagellation here in, 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 in America, uh, associated with uh, kind of the vitriolic partisanship that we've seen associated with, you know, the, the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. But our institutions really held up in that period of time, right? Because you had, you know, the legislature did what they were going to do, right? The, what they needed to do. The judiciary did what it needed to do. So how do you how do you see you know, Russia today, right? I mean, explain to us maybe how, what happened because of the failure of no checks and balances between the year 2000 and the year 2022, right? The, the 22 years of Vladimir Putin's rule. I mean, how, how did that happen? How did Vladimir Putin come to power, solidify power, consolidate power, and then engage in, I think what we can all now see pretty clearly in retrospect, a sustained campaign to reass to reassert you know the the you know uh, Russian influence over the former territories of the Soviet Union, uh, and and to you know to to pursue you know his agenda internationally as well as internally. 
Well, again, I have to reiterate that uh, Putin was simply a product of his time. There, there could have been absolutely another different person in his position uh, which had probably done uh, the same. Among, and, the, um, among the Soloviki, right? The, among yeah, the, right. the former just, KGB yeah. security class of people. Exactly. Not only them. Uh, I would say a large part of Russian elite, even the uh, civil folks who were never part of military or paramilitary structures, had this uh, revanchist imperialist views. And generally, you know, what, what happened in 1999-2000 when Putin just emerged as a new leader, we had on one hand uh, a very inexperienced, politically weak population, which was tired of uh, political turbulence, and not really experienced and even bothered, you know, with the democratic processes, sort of chaotic thing. And on the other hand, we have this predatory uh, mafia-style nomenclatura, post-Soviet elite, which understood this and wanted to do a power grab, exactly Putin's style. What is important, I'd say probably more important event than Putin's uh, election as president was what happened the, the next year, the year after in 2001 which was the merger of two rival bureaucratic parties, which seemed to be at odds in 99, pro-Putin Yedinstva, and Atechistva headed by Evgeny Primakov, the former prime minister, and Moscow mayor Yuri Lushkov. In 99, they seemed to be bitter rivals. But soon it became clear that they have the same agenda. They have very same imperialist, revanchist agenda, they wanted to centralize control over economy, major assets, and financial flows. They wanted to restore centralized governments. So they merged into one party, United Russia. That happened in the middle of uh, 2001. Since then, they won supermajority in parliament, and dictatorship was signed and sealed. So it was nomenclatura, predatory post-Soviet mafia-style elite versus the tired and unexperienced population who sort of easily given up particularly on the background of uh, significant economic growth uh, under Putin, which was a result of both successful uh, end of reforms and uh, growing price of oil. So that was like, you know, a, a perfect storm for the Russian society and a perfect opportunity for a power grab. Again, I would say it could have been somebody else. There were many people in this nomenclatura who actually wanted to do this, and they were eager and swift to join uh, Putin's monopolistic uh, dominant ruling part. You know, I mean, what what a great point! Like, I, I have not heard this, Vladimir, in in, in in many of the books I've read. I mean, it, you know, the, this this uh, merger of the parties is really not, you know, it's not covered in 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 any detail. I don't think, and and it's, it's the story is mainly about you know the Siloviki, the you know the former security people and military people really taking power away from Yeltsin, Yeltsin granting power to them. Uh, on New Year's Day in 2000, and you know, I, I think that you know this this. Uh, but but we did get Putin. You said it could have been others, but it was Putin, right? <laughs> and, and of course, Putin. I think laid out his agenda in that speech that he gave on New Year's Day in, in the year 2000. Of course, he he doubled down on it in the Munich speech in 2007, right? But he got to work almost right away, right? Meddling in Ukraine's elections, uh, you know, the the denial of service attacks on Estonia, the and of course, the invasion of Georgia, the first invasion of of of, uh, of Ukraine in 2014. But there, but in between all of those those you know egregious actions, uh, you know, and 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 uh, and so, and sort of examples of 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 aggression, uh, there was a sustained campaign, right, to subvert the West 
and to and to restore Russia to national greatness. Can you sort of hit some of those milestones and and maybe talk a little bit about your personal experience? Like, so you mentioned, okay, you were 17, right, in 1991. Now you're witnessing in your 20s that there's this period of consolidation of power, right, by uh, by the, the, these kind of revanchist, revisionist uh, elites. Um, what 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 is your what was your view? What were you doing? And what's your understanding of the period uh, of Putin's rule, right, from 2000 to 2022? Uh, yeah, I was 17 in 89, but in 2000, when Putin was elected president, I was already 27. Uh, and I was heading the department in one of the federal regulatory agencies, Federal Energy Commission. This is the analog of American FERC, uh, electricity and gas uh, markets. I was heading a major strategy department there. And uh, listen, that, that's important for Americans to understand what time that was. Uh, I was like a mid-level official in the Russian government. And I was obviously openly against Putin. And I voted for the other candidate, Grigory Yevlinsky, and I openly said it. It was allowed. That, that was late Yeltsin time. Uh, it was absolutely okay to criticize the sitting president and vote against him in elections. Just... So you have an idea what time that was. Uh, now, uh, clearly, when, since Putin was appointed uh, prime minister in uh, August 99, it was very clear that uh, he's actually aiming at turning around all these major decentralization trends and agendas that we were uh, putting forward. Uh, I was part of the reformers blocking the government, which really looked forward to do more decentralization of political and economic power, more power to the regions, to local communities, privatization and uh, exiting uh, control over state property and major state corporations. Now, Putin was showing clear signs of reversing that trend. I wouldn't go uh, uh, into a long description because uh, you can read a brilliant book by Catherine Belton called Putin's People, uh, yeah. which describes yeah. all this process, and it heavily quotes myself as well. So I'm one of the most... Uh, uh, quoted, uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's definitely quote. a good book. No, I, I love that book. It's a great book. So, uh, so if, if, yeah. if your listeners want a more detailed explanation, I think they should go and uh, read this book. But the bottom line, first Putin's years were sort of a struggle. And the oil was also cheap, and it was not guaranteed the economic growth would stay. So he was sort of flirting with the idea of reforms, democracy, and so on. Now, I can tell you a story when I already left the government, but I was still informally advising uh, German Greff, the economic minister and major reformer, uh, sometime in early 2004, uh, when Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of Fed, he actually gave a speech uh, saying that we have now entered uh, an era of an exceptionally high prices of oil. And oil jumped to $50 per barrel back then for the first time ever. So Greif called me, uh, asked me to come to his office and actually looked at me and said, uh, what's your take? Is Greenspan right? Are we really into an era of a high-priced oil? But in his eyes, I saw a totally different question. The real question was, can we now allow ourselves much more than we ever previously, uh, previously thought uh, we'll be able to do? So that really untied a lot of hands in the Kremlin. This newly accumulated oil wealth really uh, helped to unleash all their imperial ideas, which were contained by economic weakness of Russia. Right, and, and we should and we point, should note we should note too. Could you just summarize as well, like the you know the, the state-owned 
companies, right? I mean, so that Russia gets, I mean, the, the government gets direct access to these profits because of the statist economic model that survived, right? With with Gazprom and Rosneft, um, you know, in, in, the, in the post-Soviet period. Exactly. We, uh, we had these terrible uh, disputes about that in the government uh, 20 years ago. And it was a lot of trendy, fashionable idea of like South Korean chairboards. We're going to yeah. build a handful of state monopolies owned by the government, and they will be the drivers of economic growth. Now, I said, folks, uh, you're crazy because monopolies are lazy. Monopolies are non-transparent. Monopolies are corrupt and non-efficient. They will simply rob the country and deprive us of economic growth uh, further down the road. Well, this is actually exactly what happened later, right? But then uh, Griev, Putin, everybody, Kudrin as well, they were absolutely fascinated with this idea that we need to build a handful of national champions who, you know, like heavy horses, will drag our economy forward into a better future. That was a huge mistake. Uh, But that was a part of Putin's post-Soviet centralized thinking. These people really believe in centralized control over everything. That is, on one hand, their religion, and on the other hand, a very powerful instrument of enrichment through corruption, because you control all these financial flows, you get a prize with the ability to build all these, you know, luxurious palaces on Black Sea. No, this, is so, this is so darn important. What you're saying is so incisive, right? These authoritarians are obsessed with control, right? And you see that in, 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 in Russia, but you see that in China and other authoritarian regimes. And, 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 and this is such a, an amazing story of how they established control, right? So you're talking now about, about what happened in the early 2000s as Putin comes into power and, and the erosion, right, of freedom and, and the shift from where you were right, when you were in your, in your late 20s and you could criticize the government, you could vote for another candidate, you could be vocal about it. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think this is so important for you to continue Please continue telling this story, right, of the of the erosion of, of freedom and and how Putin in particular consolidated power and, and, and created this authoritarian regime that we see today. Yeah, the unfortunate part of the whole situation was that population had completely abstained. And here's also an important part. Americans should understand this. Uh, generally, Russians have never accepted dismantling of democratic institutions. Like all the time, like all these past 20 years, if you ask them in opinion polls, do they support abolishing direct elections of uh, city mayors or regional governors, that will be a healthy two-thirds no, all the time. Second thing, uh, parties which supported abolishing democracy were never you know, popular beyond really a very marginal level. Uh, it was even current Putin's rhetoric is like, we have a democracy. People still have a say. Nobody's admitting that, that uh, this is a, a dictatorship. And there are many other criteria which shows that Russians really like uh, to have influence on politics, but they were deprived from that against their will. However, in, in the early Putin's years, they abstained. Everybody was so pleased with unexpected and very fast economic growth. Just to let you know, during the first eight years of Putin in power, Average GDP growth was 7% a year on average, and average growth of real disposable income was over 12% a year for eight years in a row. Now, when uh, folks like myself and late Boris Nemtsov were 
publishing reports and speaking out uh, against Putin at that time. People said you crazy. Boris Nemtsov, we should say, who was assassinated by Putin, right? Yes, so, yes, exactly. Assassinated by Putin on the bridge right near the Kremlin on, wall. Right, right outside the Kremlin, absolutely. He, yeah. was, he was my co-author and friend. And uh, in early Putin's uh, years, everybody criticized us, saying, folks, you may be right in, in terms of criticizing the general direction, but economic growth, you know, you can't beat that. This is why Putin uh, gained so much initial popularity. And this is why, unfortunately, people uh, in mass have abstained from politics. That was the biggest mistake of Russians, because when they found out that growth has ended long ago, it was like uh, 2008, as they say, was the last year when Titanic saw daylight. Uh, since then, for almost 14 years in a row, we, Russia haven't seen meaningful economic growth. We have been warning of that. But it became too late because people were already deprived of political rights and could not influence the situation anymore. And really, what's interesting is that's around the same time when Putin became more brazen internationally, right? So you have the 2007 Munich speech. You have the the uh, the massive cyber attacks on Estonia of that in that same year. You have the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Can you describe this kind of transition from the period of economic growth and Putin consolidating power, right, and gaining power and control, and then how that related to what he was doing externally? And of course, there are examples earlier than that, the manipulation of the election in Ukraine, 2004. But but really, I think 2007, to me at least, seems like a break point when Putin was be becoming much more aggressive internationally. Can you describe like what he was trying to achieve and 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 how that you know how that you know what, what was your perspective on that period of time from 2007 on? Uh, first, I have to say three things. First, this uh, new imperialist anti-Western policy trend had emerged long before Putin, and I'd say the godfather of that was Primakov, the former foreign affairs minister and prime minister of Russia. I used to work in the government when Primakov was heading uh, foreign ministry and later became prime minister. It was already very visible that this, you know, new big dark wave is coming from the top of the Russian power. Uh, we actually we, do, we stopped considered America uh, and the West as friends, as allies. They came strong Eurasianism, anti-Westernism, and so on. You remember how Primakov had diverted his plane uh, over the Atlantic in '99 when the operation against Milosevic had started in uh, former Yugoslavia, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, again, I come back to that same point that Putin has merged with Primakov's party just a year after he was elected. So that was a sort of collective thinking of post-Soviet Russian nomenclatura. Now, second thing is that uh, during first uh, Putin's years, he tried to sort of offer the West a deal, like treat us like Saudi Arabia. I even heard it said once directly by Slava Nikonov, uh, one of the prominent foreign policy figures uh, in Putin's entourage. He said, at one meeting, I don't remember what this was, but he said to some high-level Americans, why do you speak democracy and values to us? Why don't you treat us like Saudi Arabia? Except that we're authoritarian, but let's be allies. We can That's do fascinating. that. fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, yeah. But this, this collapsed uh, after the so-called color revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, and mm -hmm. other post-Soviet space, which uh, Putin clearly took as attempt of the West to go after him. 
to undermine well, and, and, and you know it's, it's i think it's it's worth noting just quickly here that in yeah. this joint statement that xi jinping and putin crafted just prior to the olympics they used they used the phrase color revolutions that they were going to be against color. so so he is sort of obsessed with this idea right that 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 uh that he has to extinguish any kind of you know opportunity for people in russia uh, demanding a say in how they're governed right this is what he's afraid of he's afraid uh, of you me, vladimir i mean yes uh, let me make it absolutely clear because i was also observing these processes at close range and these yeah. revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, and other post-Soviet countries were genuine, legitimate, bottom-up movements of their own populations against the onslaught of Putin-style authoritarianism uh, uh, on the post-Soviet space. They all have protected against rigged elections, which were meant to install uh, Putin-minded, Putin-like autocrats. So color, this, there's a, you know, this popular talk about color revolutions as, as a thing that is staged from abroad. No, that's the language of Putin and Xi Jinping. What, it, what was happening is reality is that people of Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova, and others, they were struggling against attempts of dictators right. to encircle them into all this. I mean, I mean it, it, was, yeah. it, it wasn't a revolution, sadly, but in Belarus recently. How about yes. in Kazakhstan, right? I mean, yes. like, I mean I, these, these are, you no, know. That yeah. is very important because yeah. if you look at the past four years, you see all Putin's Eurasia essentially rioting against mafia dictatorships. Yeah. 2018, Armenia. 2020, Belarus and Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. 2022, yeah. Kazakhstan. Russia all the time with large-scale Navalny protests, which began... Yes. Uh, five years ago, right? So, and we're talking about Alexei Navalny, the the, yeah, the right. main opposition figure who you know so well, who was poisoned by Putin yeah, yeah, right, two years right. ago and is now imprisoned uh, in, in yeah, Russia. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of my friends, Boris Nemtsov, was murdered. Uh, yeah. uh, another my fr friend of mine, Alexei Navalny, is right now sitting in jail after being nearly murdered. But my point was, it, it's very important uh, that all Putin's Eurasia is burning under yeah. his feet. Is Eurasian Absolutely. Union rioting, uh, uh, actually struggling for democracy, not accepting dictatorship? Just think and, a and this is this is so important, Vladimir. Nobody's talking about this. Putin yeah. portrays himself as strong. He's actually extremely, I think, weak now. Right. Uh, and and he's he's obviously, I think, overextended. We're, we're going to talk about Ukraine, obviously, and 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 the horrible situation there, and and the humanitarian catastrophe, and. What what, uh, what what Putin has done, but you know, I think this is just an important point. Can you describe more about this? Right, explain what should Americans know about this period of time of of the color revolutions and people demanding a say in how they're governed? Because I think a lot of times Americans we engage in kind of this, you know, this this uh, thinking that well, you know, democracy is great for us, but maybe authoritarians authoritarianism is better for other people, right? And we we you, know, you hear what what I think is is kind of bigotry masquerading as cultural sensitivity sometimes when people say well you know those russians man they, they like authoritarianism right i mean those the slavic peoples or whatever so could you explain more you know about well, again, what is uh, really be, happening what are people doing to try yeah, to yeah. have a say in how they're governed i'll be i'll be happy to supply a lot of literature <laughs> links studies of that but but bottom line is that uh, for more than 20 years of putin's rules Russia have never accepted, majority of Russian population have never accepted abolishing direct elections. 
uh, elimination of independent parties and censorship in the media, uh, depriving them of opportunity to have a say. If you look at any opinion poll, well, the first thing that people in Russia say that we, what are you, when they're asked the question, what are you most unhappy about? They say we're most unhappy about with the fact that we cannot influence the policy of our government in any way. Uh, this is, I mean, there's ample amount of data which supports just that. So we see a lot of uh, genuine signs of a big bottom-up demand for democracy in Russia. We do not see anything on the contrary. Uh, as, again, as opposed to what many peoples in the West are saying that, listen, Russians are like that, they want dictatorships, but there's no empirical data that supports that. There is not a single party which advocates for dictatorship and is popular. There is not a single poll which would say Russians would voluntarily give up their rights. No, they want them back, even on, according to, uh, to official Kremlin polling data. So coming back to Putin and the color revolutions, I think Putin understood uh, a long time ago that there will come a moment when the Russian people will also claim freedom, pretty much as the people of Ukraine, uh, Georgia, Moldova, and the others. He knows that which is why all that he's been doing in the past few years is doubling down on censorship, doubling down on repression. We now have uh, two and a half times more official uh, political prisoners than we had in Brezhnev and Andropov times in, in late uh, Soviet Union, two times more, right? Uh, and uh, I think it, it's a general pattern. Uh, if you look at Maduro in Venezuela, Assad in Syria, Lukashenko right. in Belarus, the pattern is, these regimes completely understand that they can only survive against the will of the people through extreme br brutality. Extreme well, and, and also, uh, also yeah. Vladimir, I think this is a true st you know, statistic, is that there are more people in the internal security services in Russia than there are in the Russian military overall, exactly. right? And, exactly. Exactly. And this is not this is not a sign of strength, I don't think. This is a sign of weakness, right? And, right. Right. Exactly. and, and, and so... Okay, I, I, I mean, I, I'm resisting the temptation to, to fast forward to today because there's so much rich material in between, you know, 2007 and eight, which we talked about, and 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 uh, and today. But 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 we have to talk about today, right? We have to talk about what has happened uh, in in Ukraine, this assault on the Ukrainian people, which, of course, it didn't begin just in in the last month in in 2022, but began really, I would say with Putin's reign, right? In the 2004 manipulated election and the sustained campaign of subversion. And of course, you know, the annexation of Crimea and the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So it's it's already been, you know, a shooting war for, you know, for, for a long time, you know, for, uh, for, for, uh, for eight years. Uh, so uh, how did this happen? Right. And, and, and could you help us understand what people are struggling to understand? What is happening inside Russia? against the backdrop of this invasion and, and the war that we're all watching kind of with horror and, uh, and, and with you know, deep emotion uh, for the Ukrainian people and, and how they're suffering. Yeah, first, uh, several points uh, to conclude about how, how we came to that. First, yeah. it, it was clear that Putin uh, began to, to view the West as an existential enemy, not even because the West was doing something, but because it presented a role model. A democracy model, uh, which was far more attractive. This is actually why Soviet Union fell. Because okay, Vladimir, can we, can we, can we, I, I just want to highlight this, right? I want to highlight this because 
in America, you hear the, you know, the John Mearsheimer realist school of, you know, we caused this, which is profoundly arrogant to think that we caused it. Right. I think, as you're mentioning, Vladimir Putin has aspirations beyond those that are in reaction to what we do. Right. So could you just expound on this idea that, you know, that that the West caused this with NATO enlargement? I mean, could you just I mean, I think our viewers, it's super important to hear your perspective on this. Now, when I was working in the government in late Yeltsin, early Putin's years, there were a lot of people in the Russian elite. Now, listen, that's important. Who were openly saying it's actually very good that Eastern Europe has joined NATO because they will receive some kind of document that they are protected now. And maybe they will stop hating us and view us suspiciously. And we begin yeah. opening borders, harmonizing legislation, creating common market and that sort of stuff. Many really high-ranked, top-ranked people in the Russian government have been saying just that. And I think this was a very right concept, that uh, NATO enlargement uh, towards Central and Eastern Europe was a very good thing because it eliminated this potential threat. Uh, they now feel protected, so we'll be just fine. We'll be friends. Right. Right. Putin and the revanchist folks, they like, had a very... Fra like France and Germany, France and Germany, right? I mean, yeah. historic enemies who are now, you know, part right. of the EU, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And and so so actually we had this idea 20 years ago. I mean, me and my colleagues, reformers in the government, we had this idea that I mean, let's drop all the imperial past. Let's really create this joint European space, open borders, common market, uh, common investment space and the, the free movement of people. I mean, let's just build, because we knew the enormous economic benefits of that, economic benefits of peace, open borders, and trade. And there was such an opportunity. Russia could have been a totally different country by now. We really could have taken off if we just went down this road and not Putin's imperialistic road. But the imperialistic road, again, which I would reiterate, it began not just with Putin, but much earlier with folks like Primakov. I think it was a tragic mistake for Yeltsin to appoint Primakov anywhere in the 90s. Foreign minister, prime minister, give him a lot of political weight. It was a tragic mistake. There was the real start of Russian anti-Westernism in politics began with uh, Primakov. So the thing is that, uh, first... Putin, uh, in his rising uh, authoritarian and uh, new imperialist policies, he claimed the post-Soviet space as his exclusive zone uh, of influence. And you cannot say that you control post-Soviet space if you do not control Ukraine. That's a jewel in the crown. With all due respect, uh, the rest is not as uh, important and uh, significant as Ukraine. So he was terribly wounded. Uh, when he actually lost Ukraine two times, first in 2004 with the uh, Orange Revolution and the election of Viktor Yushchenko as president, second time in 2014 with Maidan. He suffered a terrible wound. He was bleeding all these years and thinking of how can I take it back? I think his decision uh, to finally strike militarily came out of two considerations. First, he exhausted an options to destabilize Ukraine through, you know, hybrid right. war, coercive, yeah. and, and through political means. There, there are no pro-Putin forces in, in, in Ukraine anymore who can theoretically come to power. And second, uh, let me be absolutely frank with you. At this particular moment, he considered to the West to be particularly weak. 
Do yeah, like I, you know, I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I think this is super important, right? Deterrence, somebody like Putin, is, I think, a simple equation of capability times will. And I think he believes that our will, he believed our will in the West was zero, right? And this is the disastrous surrender and evacuation of Afghanistan. This is, you know, the vitriolic partisanship that we see here in the United States. It is, you know, it's this, he saw Olaf Schultz in, in, in Germany, an SPD party, you know, uh, now chancellor in a weak coalition government. Macron is facing re-election. You know, <laughs> you, know you have Boris Johnson uh, is, is, is being, you know, uh, uh, attacked uh, because of, you know, having parties during COVID. I mean, so I think he looked at the whole scene. And what's I think what, what people should do is they should read the joint statement of Xi Jinping and Putin just prior to the Olympics. It's all arrogance. It's all, it's, the, you know, the free freedom democracy is over, right? You know, bandwagon with us, this new era of international relations. And, and you know, I, I think, Vladimir, I mean, I, I think there's an, an analogy back to 2014 and the the invasion of Ukraine then and the annexation of Crimea, which I think is a direct result, you know, of the unforced red line in Syria, you know, in 2013, 14. So say, could you just describe a little bit more about this perception of weakness uh, and, yeah. and, and, and how Putin was emboldened? Uh, General, if I may, you've stolen my words because I exactly I was just going to say these two things about Germany and France. Okay. This it's no coincidence that Putin have chosen this moment because he really considered a new German government to be a very weak part of the chain, and also upcoming election. Also, your your viewers and listeners should uh, should know more about um, relations between Russia and France. French political and business elite is first unfortunately there's a very strong anti-american sentiment there let's be right. frank about it and and you know and it's been that way kind of since the 1870s sadly yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. thing, i have never i have never uh, confronted the situation in any other major uh, western capital when mm. you come to paris and meet with mid-level and top-level officials they would not me i mean they would start to talk uh, about uh, how sanctions are hurting French economy. French farmers losing the Russian market. We need to leave them the sooner the better. So if you look at the array of French presidential candidates, now Emmanuel Macron, with all that we know about him, he's still the strongest anti-Putin guy. All the others actually are advocating for being much softer on Putin. Well, being which is which is which is why in the previous election, yeah. when Macron was elected, you know, uh, Putin did everything he could to undermine. Macron's candidacy, yeah, right. Exactly, and and Putin was supporting Francois Fillon, who was a front runner, uh, but then surprisingly collapsed a few months before the election, and then was was given board seats. I mean, very highly paid board seats <laughs> at the uh, Sibur and Zarubezhnev Oil and Petrochemical Company. So it's 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 a, it's a great it's a great gig, Vladimir, if you can get it, like sitting on a a board seat of a of a Russian state-owned enterprise. This is. You know, of course, Gerhard Schroeder is the is the you know, the former chancellor of Germany. He's the the kind of the poster child for that, right? And listen, that's important. What you are doing there on the board, you're receiving up to one million dollars a year for nothing, because they have like 20, 25 board meetings a year. You know, I was on the boards. So I was managing some of the Russian top state companies when I was in government. 20, 25 board meetings a year. Now, 90% of them take place in absentia. 
they don't even meet and discuss stuff, not even on Zoom. They just signed the papers, which right. is already. I'm, I'm, rem I'm reminded yeah. Vladimir of the Dire Straits song, right? You know, yeah, money for yeah. money, money for nothing. Money for nothing, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that's. Uh, I mean, uh, this is a bribe. This is a bribe in a very direct sense of the word. But coming back, I mean, really, Putin was counting of the weak and divided West, particularly Germany and France being an absolutely weak uh, links in that regard, and uh, uh, also I think. He was, he was really happy that he saw some fractures in the transatlantic relationships between yeah. uh, America so, and so Europe. So this, this, is, this is so important, right? He uses our divisions against us and he uses avarice against people, right? He's, there, there is an, could you describe a little bit more about the, the international criminal enterprise associated with the Kremlin, with Putin, with the Soloviki, with the you know the oligarchs who are this sort of outer circle. I mean, how does it operate, and and why is it important for people to understand? First, I have to say there are different estimates uh, of the total capital flight from Russia uh, during the past twenty years of Putin's rule. But the least estimate is one trillion dollars, probably more. Money were siphoned out of Russia into various pockets uh, uh, in offshores and elsewhere, which is a lot of this mon money is being used to subvert the Western system, corrupt Western businessmen and politicians, and turn them into willful allies uh, of Putin, which is why I, I think right now, I know something because I still have a lot of uh, you know, people whom I know working uh, in Putin's system, and I do have some information about what's going on in there. Putin is absolutely shocked by the extent of unity that is taking place right now in response to his aggression uh, in Ukraine, particularly with regard to going after the oligarchs, their assets, uh, their luxurious uh, properties and so on. He did not really expect this to happen, but you, you got to understand, that's a very important tool uh, of eroding Western democracies. And last year, I actually written a report, uh, we'll be happy to share that with your viewers, uh, a report for Boris Nemtsov Foundation about Putin's malign influence and network of influence in Western Europe, specifically listing all these various influential players uh, who were actually recruited for money uh, specifically to promote Putin's interests. So he counted on this uh, nefarious web of influence before the aggression. So that will somehow stop uh, firm and united, solidified Western response. He grossly miscalculated. He did, yeah. So can we, let's maybe pick up on that, right? So if you look at, at his decision-making process prior to this invasion of, of Ukraine, this special military operation, right? I mean, he th there were a number of assumptions I think he made that turned out to be completely false, right? You mentioned he expected disunity. Well, he got unity. He expected a tepid response, but he got a very strong response, at least economically, right? He expected... The Russian military to perform extremely well in this coup domain against Kiev, and and you know, I, th I think our viewers should should look at the the victory statement that was released by mistake, right, by, by the Kremlin, uh, and and you can see how optimistic they were. They thought the Ukrainians, you know, didn't have an idea of of a nationalist identity, and they would they would fold. And you know, this guy Zelensky, right? He's a he's an actor, right? He's a he's a ballroom dancer, right? Compared to yeah. the the shirtless man on horseback of Vladimir Putin. So all these assumptions turned out to be false. Can you kind of, what is your perspective? How did, how did Putin get this so wrong? 
Well, I'd say two major miscalculations that he made apart from uh, misjudging on the Western unity is first, he underestimated Ukrainian will to resist. But this is, I think it's not just Putin being crazy, it's, it's the general sentiment of this uh, new imperialist Russian elite. Yeah. They really think of Ukrainians, they, they don't believe that they're an independent nation. They think and, of and, them and this is this is the, you know this is his you know the Put, the Putin version of history right that was published last yeah. summer right the six thousand word essay under his name. Uh, I, listen, I was struck when I was working in private sector and then in the government in the nineties. I was struck to hear this stuff uh, from the mouths of many influential Russian policymakers. Uh, I, I was absolutely shocked by that crap that many of uh, the members of the Russian elite really believe that. Ukraine is not an independent nation, it's just some form of bad Russians, you know, some dialect or something. So, and this is, this is a tale, it, it just goes well beyond Putin. This is a tale that they themselves, many of them, many of those oligarchs and folks so, sanctioned you, now, you know, uh, yeah, you have, they have you're, been feeding this crap themselves for yeah. years. Yeah. You're making so many darn important points, right? Because... I think the, the popular perception these days is this is one man, right? One man is the reason why we have this catastrophe, but it's not. It's broader than this, as you're describing. So, so I'm sorry to interrupt you, but but this is just an, I think worth amplifying that yeah, this is so, a sentiment uh, shared you know, between Putin and 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 those around him who support his agenda. So when Putin came to power, uh, there, was, there were two different camps uh, in the Russian elite. One camp said that we need to reform. We need to treat our neighbors as equal sovereign nations. We need all to move towards uh, building a common uh, free democratic European space and free common market. I was part of that team. But Putin squeezed us all from the government and people who are ruling this country now. That's again, that's beyond Putin. That's a collective thinking that there is no such thing as independent Ukraine. We should completely subdue them. And uh, uh, they, they, really, I think many decision makers thought that uh, Ukrainians are simply very corrupt and fearful people. They will just uh, throw down their weapons and run away. Sure. Yeah. That's yeah. a serious miscalculation beyond just Putin's personal mind. It, many Russian uh, elite members share that view. And second thing, obviously, they clearly overestimated the capabilities of the Russian army, but I have been speaking volumes about that. This is actually why I thought that the invasion won't happen, because with such a weak army, we cannot get involved in that sort of effort. And this is really something I don't get until this very point. Why did he do this, essentially knowing that he knew that our military was not capable of undertaking such a major exercise, which is why I think we now have reports that they really counted for just three days of Blitzkrieg and they did not even prepare supplies, maintenance and all other stuff beyond just these three days, which means that he really calculated on effective Ukraine surrender. He yeah. didn't really think that Ukrainians would resist. He thought that they would run away. So I think these things are connected. Uh, he knew that he had some weak, major weaknesses in the army. But he still went for it because he just thought that Ukrainians simply won't resist. Right. And, and you know, I, I'll tell you, I, I'm not surprised about the performance of the Russian military either. Right. And and, you know, you have you what you've been describing is a corrupt government, a corrupt system. And the military was corrupted as well. Right. In, in terms of 
you know, leadership, lack of training, really lack of resources as well. I think a lot of people look at the at the defense budget of Russia, you know, $68 billion, you know, uh, 3% of GDP. They think, well, that's pretty formidable. But really, two-thirds of that goes to the corrupt enterprise of their defense industry, right? And and yeah, very, yeah, very yeah, little yeah. of that goes to the military itself. I mean, most Russian soldiers make about $540 a month, right? That's, that's um, the Everest thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so 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 could you say a little bit more about the the weakness of the Russian military? And why did so many people, I mean, not get it, not understand that that, it, that, that there was that there were these frailties and weakness there? Well, first, I have to say that you're absolutely right. General, it's not just corruption, but it's also corruption within corruption. Because uh, when people say uh, that Russia has a big military budget, uh, just up to 3% of GDP, now that might be a fascinating figure. But we should always remember that about two-thirds of that goes not to the military, but to the arms manufacturing complex. Yes. Yeah. And under Putin, you know what Putin did in the, in the uh, uh, military hardware manufacturing? He completely destroyed all the competition. Now, even Joseph Stalin understood the darn importance of competition between different design bureaus, different producers. He always maintained a competitive environment. Not, this is why you get the T-34 tank, you know, as an yeah. armor officer, right? Yeah, you get, right. it's innovation. So you yeah. you got to have Boeing. Just imagine you didn't have Boeing versus Lockheed Martin, uh, right. and there was just one producer. This right. one producer would be always coming at you saying, I just need uh, more money for less delivery and less right. quote, as, as it turns out in there. So that's what Putin did. He built a bunch of united corporations. He eliminated all the competition. And then, I mean, this is so funny. In one of his, in a few years ago, in one of his recent public addresses, he complained, how is it possible that military hardware producers increase their prices up to 11-fold, 11-fold uh, against what was initially agreed when the contract was signed? Now, somebody give him a book on economy, how economy works and what is monopolism. Monopolism destroys efficiency. It leads to higher price, lower quality. This is actually what we see. We see many Ukrainians actually doing a photos with Russian cruise missiles or caliber missiles, which never exploded and yeah. just went on hitting through asphalt and something. That's right. quality of uh, the Russian military hardware uh, manufacture. Now, the army left is, uh, with, but with crumbles from this table. It's terribly underpaid, under-equipped. I mean, why am I saying this? You just got to look at these pictures of a poor Russian soldiers, of uh, uh, Russian uh, vehicles, which are absolutely not, not serviced for a month or so, you know. That's right. Bro broken down, right? Absolutely. Tires dry, dry rotted from not moving. Thanks. Uh, yeah. tanks, tanks stranded because uh, there is no fuel supply system in place yeah. and, and so on. So, I mean, there, this is, again, this is corruption within corruption within corruption. Now Putin's learned the hard lesson that corruption is not just an unpleasant buzz from folks like Navalny or Milan, right? That's a real systemic problem which can collapse everything, including his military incursion. He, he now learns it the hard way. Vladimir, okay, so I, I, there's so much to talk about. I mean, we have to kind of wrap this up at some point, but I want you to come back. But so, I, I mean, I know what our viewers want to know. They want to know what do you think happens next, right? I mean, you see, you've seen all of Putin's assumptions were wrong, right? 
Ukraine didn't collapse. Zelensky was a strong, not a weak leader. Uh, his military was weak because of the corruption that you that you described, uh, and 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 you know, uh, of course, what this this military can still do a lot of damage, right? You, it doesn't take a lot of military competence to rubble cities, whether it's Kharkiv or Mariupol. Uh, now, you know, Kiev is under assault. Uh, his eyes are on Odessa. You know. Vladimir, I don't think he can pull it off. He can't do it, I don't think. But what is no, your assessment? No. What what do you think happens next? How do you see he's I think he's already failed. What do you think? And then yes. and then how how but how does we get to some kind of a resolution of this, right? That addresses the humanitarian crisis that that ensures that Putin fails, right? Cuz he has to fail here because he'll continue this campaign as you mentioned, you know, the, the campaign has been on since 2000. So, what's your what is your what is your diagnosis of the situation now, and what is your prognosis right for 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 what's going to happen in the future? First, I agree that yes, he already lost because it was either a blitzkrieg win uh, or a loss, uh, and uh, Ukrainians' will to resist is growing by the day because I see that uh, during the first days they really counted on uh, NATO military intervention, but uh, during the past three weeks, they actually learned they have to fight by themselves. Yes, they are supplied with weapons and other stuff, but they have to fight themselves. They have sufficient will and motivation to fight and resist, and we saw that happen. Now, the motivation of the Russian army to continue the fight is zero. Zero. I think uh, zero. To what I mean, I think that's so important, right? This yeah. is important to know, right? I mean, military prowess isn't the number of tanks you have, right? It's it's will fundamentally. But please go on. This is really an important perspective. I think contrary to what propaganda is saying on television, uh, I'm sure Russian military servicemen they really understand uh, what kind of exercise they are uh, being involved right now. They really see that they're destroying uh, peaceful Ukrainian towns and villages, right? They, they're killing innocent people. You, you see, I mean, uh, I saw a lot of interviews of uh, detained Russian uh, military servicemen detained by Ukrainians. This is actually what I expected them to say, that, yeah, we fully realize what we do. You cannot keep the morale uh, in this sort of uh, exercise, right? And... Uh, uh, many of the real combat-ready forces have been decimated during the first uh, few weeks of campaign. So Putin can only continue to bombard Ukrainian cities. He cannot advance. At some point, he will have to concede defeat in his initial plan to capture uh, major Ukrainian cities and most of uh, Ukrainian territory. Now, what happens then? That, that's important because history tells us that significant mil military defeats basically lead to turbulent domestic political events. Sure. Happened yeah. in 1905 with the loss of war to Japan, happened after the, the First World War, happened after the war in Afghanistan. So yeah. I think uh, I, I'm against, uh, you know, trying to portray this rosy picture that Putin would uh, immediately collapse, but he suffered such a major structural blow to the integrity of his whole system which will also endure uh, because Western sanctions are not going away uh, and uh, they will not be reconsidered before he really changes uh, his policy right. and makes a big policy U-turn. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's a pariah. Yeah. He's, a, he's an yeah. international pariah. Right. At this yeah. Yeah. And that will, that will take a heavy toll on Russian economy. So many people who are still unaware of what's really going on, which is being hidden by propaganda, they will uh, ultimately wake up. 
and that's important. So uh, that will be probably a much longer and harder road than we can hope for. But yeah. this is, I think, the beginning of the end of, of Putin's system. Right. It, 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 uh, ultimately, in the longer term, it will not survive the blow to its structural integrity that we are seeing today. You know, I, I, you know, you, you know much better than I do, but I think you're right about that. But what people are worried about, Vladimir, is like he's it, it, on his way down. How much damage can he do? Right. So everybody's worrying these days about a couple of things. One is the, you know, the dog that didn't bark, which is cyber attacks, right? And 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 of course, Putin has rattled his nuclear saber as well. So for those who are concerned about what might happen next. And 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 who are, and who think that we shouldn't do more to support the Ukrainians because uh, they're worried about you know these sort of elements of power that he still controls. What 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 is your prediction in terms of how much more damage can Putin do, right? And and uh, and and what is, what are the implications for for U.S. and European and NATO policy uh, re- relevant to Ukraine? First, uh, he can do a lot of damage. Uh, Vladimir Putin is an extremely dangerous man. He's a ruthless murderer with total disregard for human life and dignity. I think all the world knows that now. So, uh, but listen, I haven't been through all this myself. Uh, I prefer to speak about this matter as calmly. We need to calmly prepare to deter him, uh, given that like all the scenarios are possible. And I think, I don't know, uh, I don't remember what this was, but um, I saw one of the recent publications. There is an array of them coming right now with all this uh, situation. But somebody said that uh, the West and NATO should actually try to get itself out of fear of escalation. Uh, because this is something Putin knows, that many people in NATO countries and the Western countries are afraid that he will do something uh, uh, which will escalate the situation. I think overcoming the fear is very important. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Vladimir, I, I cannot agree with you more, right? Stop using his language. Stop saying World War III. Stop talking about all the things you're not going to do, right? I mean, right? How does It doesn't work, right, when you talk right. about everything you're not going to do. Just don't say anything about exactly. it. Because Putin yeah. will exploit Exploit it. Of yours. And this Absolutely. is what he's been doing all along. So don't show him any signs of weakness. Right. That is, I think, uh, morally, emotionally, that's the strongest deterrent because it's yeah. also a game of nerves. So you have to show some strength that, that you are not afraid of an absolute. There are no prohibitive scenarios in defending the world, defending freedom, defending democracy, right? Defending the, everything that you hold dear in the Western uh, civilization. So uh, while he feels that you have a weakness, he might attack. Yeah. He likes to use the cracks in the pavement. He goes there where there's yeah. a weakest part. As we just discussed why he launched this aggression now, because he saw weak links, Germany, Ukraine, cracks absolutely. between America and its uh, European partners. Afghanistan, so don't, 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 yeah, absolutely. Don't, 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 right? yep. don't show him weakness uh, and calmly, without emotion, prepare for different scenarios. But I have to say that uh, there is a quote which I can use from Dmitry Ragozin, one of the key Putin's allies and head of Roscosmos Space Agency at the moment. Uh, uh, nine years ago, you can Google it on the Russian internet. He gave a lecture which was called Russia will lose a war to America in six hours. 
meaning that that was a very public speech. Rogozin was a high-ranked uh, policy official at the time. He really recognized that Russia doesn't stand a chance in a direct military confrontation with the West. He described in de detail basically how, how you're going to cook us, right? So uh, essentially, I think uh, uh, you need to stop being afraid. Many, many people, I see fear in the eyes of many Western politicians when they talk about potential uh, confrontation with Putin. Remove the fear. Uh, analyze the situation and uh, the available options of deterrence calmly. You have a lot of opportunity. Uh, in the confrontation, Putin doesn't stand a chance. When he feels that strength, when he feels that resolve, he will back off. I think an analog to this is, you know, it's obviously the risk of action is always quite apparent. But I think some people don't factor in the risk of inaction, right, and, and, and timidity. Exactly. So the last question, because, I mean, this is, I think, maybe going to be the longest Battlegrounds episode. But to me, it seems the shortest because I've, I've learned so much. And this is so important for our audience to know what's happening internal internally in Russia right now, right? I mean, people want to know, right? Putin's doing everything he can to, to shut down access to external sources of information. We saw this brave Russian television producer, right, who came out with her sign, you know, uh, protesting the war, who's probably going to go to jail now for 15 years, right, for, for if you say anything against, uh, uh, against the government. We've seen journalists, as well as opposition politicians, obviously, who you've known, murdered, uh, so we don't really know what are the Russian people thinking. So could you, and you, and I, I, th I know that you know because you have so many friends and contacts. What's happening internal to Russia, because of you know of of what's happening in Ukraine, the economic sanctions, you know, all of the assumptions now you know being demonstrably false, uh, the casualties Russians have have experienced, uh, and that we should say sadly too, right? I mean we're. We, we are obviously heartbroken about what's happened to Ukrainians, but it's also a loss uh, for, for Russians uh, who are dying in this conflict. So what's happening internal to Russia? Uh, Russia is experiencing a very difficult, painful and sobering awakening now, from all these you know, years of comatose geopolitical fantasy that was constructed by Putin's propaganda. And really, you got to understand that this is a tooth and nail fight uh, for the hearts and minds of every single Russian. Like uh, what, I, what I'm saying to my viewers and uh, Navalny Live channel, my YouTube channel, we have millions of viewers and uh, very much increased audience in the past few weeks of the conflict. And uh, what, I, what I keep saying is that you got to talk to everybody around you and try to convince just one person a day, one person a week. Uh, okay, one person a month, just anybody is very helpful. Uh, tell them the truth. Try to get them away from this, uh, you know, uh, none of uh, Putin's propaganda, imperial propaganda reality. That works. Uh, what we do know based on opinion polling data that is fresh data that is uh, coming from Russia is that public opinion is changing by the day. Uh, the more people are learning that this is not just a small-scale peacekeeping operation in Donbass, but a full-scale war and assault on peaceful Ukrainian cities, you will see more of that episodes, like this brave uh, uh, employee of Channel One uh, coming out on the air with anti-war slogan, Marina Avsanikova. You'll see more of that. You'll see more of that awakening. However, it's a very hard job because there's a brutal censorship involved. There is new draconian laws introduced that Russians might get up to 15 years in jail for right. 
denying the peacekeeping role of Russian military forces, you know. So up to 15 years in jail, that's pretty scary. That's pretty scary for Russians. I have to say so much admiration for many, like millions of brave people who continue to spread the word of truth. Many of them come to protest in the streets. You well, well, well over a thousand people arrested every day, right? Isn't it? Yeah, I think it's exactly, exactly. So about twenty thousand people arrested overall uh, across the country. That's that's a township. Twenty thousand people. That's a township that was arrested across the country since uh, the invasion began and the protests against the invasion began. But again, uh, this awakening is happening. It might not be too fast. Might be painful. But again, I believe deep in my heart that Russia is a normal, peaceful society. It wants freedom. It wants democracy. It wants to live at peace with everybody else. Yeah, Putin had injected this drug of new imperialist fever, and this drug was somehow working. But, I mean, uh, it will go away. We we are right now, at this very minute, we are doing all we can to actually talk to millions of Russian people and make this imperial fever go away. I think the future is with us, not with Putin. Well, Vladimir, you're you're an inspiration to me. I'm sure to our viewers. Uh, you know, I, I think that we we have had a crisis of confidence here. You've witnessed it, right? In in the in the West and in 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 America, as we watch Ukrainians fight for their freedom, as we watch you, you know, who are, advocate for the, the the freedom of the Russian people, I think this is maybe a time for us to take at least a moment to celebrate the freedoms that we enjoy, right? And, and, and to, to, to resolve, to cherish those freedoms, you know, and, and to, to strengthen our democratic institutions and processes. So uh, thank you for helping us understand better a real battleground uh, in, in Ukraine, and, but really a battleground for freedom and for democracy. And, uh, you know, I, I, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, I can't thank you enough, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, General. It was a real pleasure. And thank you very much for your support. We really appreciate the support from all the free people of the world. Well, how could we not support somebody who's engaged in such a, a virtuous and, and important mission? So thank you, Vladimir. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.